You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new documentary, Crude, The Real Price of Oil, our guest today, director Joe Berlinger, presents one of the largest and most controversial legal cases on the planet, an inside look at the infamous $27 billion Amazon Chernobyl case, a lawsuit by tens of thousands of Ecuadorans against Chevron over contamination of the Ecuadorian Amazon. Berlinger is an award-winning filmmaker, journalist, and photographer whose films include the celebrated documentaries Brothers Keeper, Paradise Lost, and Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. Joe Berlinger, welcome to film school. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, now, you're in Southern California. I know Mike already asked you this, but... You're... Yeah, yeah, I just arrived late last night. We had a crazy week in New York. You know, I'm a New Yorker, and the film opened in New York, and, yeah. uh, it, you know, it did very well, and then somehow I, I staggered home and got on an airplane and now I'm here. <laughs> so the, the opening I, went, I consumed a lot of oil to get here so I'm, I guess I guess Uh-oh. I'm a hypocrite. Oh no. Well, I'm glad you realize you're a hypocrite. You well, know some you know, people hey, wouldn't yeah. even have, have been that self-effacing. I appreciate that. I, I, I you know I'm, I'm serious about that too. You know, well, you know actually crude, you know I I obviously believe that we need to come up with another way of powering ourselves, but crude is not really I don't want to give people the wrong idea. Crude is not an anti-oil film per uh-huh. se. It's an anti-corporate irresponsibility film. There are the right ways of drilling for oil, even though it's a messy business and terrible for the environment, and we should come up with another way of doing it. Yeah. But there's a right way of drilling for oil, and there's a bad way for, of drilling for oil, and, and that's, what, that's what Crude is about, yes. uh, the movie Crude. How were you introduced to the story, the, the plight of the Ecuadorians? Uh, well, the plaintiff's American... There's a, it's, a, it's an Ecuadorian lawsuit, but it's being uh, financed by some American class-action attorneys and... Uh, the the lead American attorney came to my office uh, in Manhattan. Um, you know, as a fan of my films, you know, the last film was about a heavy metal band. You know, Metallica, some kind of monsters. I'm not quite sure why he was knocking on my door because I'm not necessarily known as a human rights uh, filmmaker or an environmentalist. Although I feel I, I I've become one. Um, but he was looking for somebody to care about this story, and uh, he took me down to the region, and I was absolutely horrified at what I saw. Um, you know, there are hundreds of unlined pits uh, that are leaching petroleum waste, and they've been there for three decades into the water supply. Um, you walk around these indigenous villages, and the lives have been decimated. Water is completely polluted. You know, indigenous people who have lived in harmony with nature for millennia, uh, we've completely destroyed their connection to their land and uh, their way of life. And, and there's a price, you know, the theme of the movie is that there's a price that other people pay for our uh, you know, when we don't pay attention to what companies do in our names. The, the thing that struck me about, uh, and I, I was reading about your visit down there, too, is uh, these people who live n- near the Amazon, water source, should be fishing, are eating canned tuna? Yeah, I mean, that was that was the one image that just blew me away. You know, we went by canoe to uh, one of these Kofan villages, and the Kofan are one of the five indigenous tribes that make up this lawsuit uh, against Chevron. And I got out of my canoe, and the village elders were preparing a communal meal, and I looked, and they were using these giant vats of canned tuna, you know, the cheapest, the cheapest most industrial 
kind of tuna that you might get at a cheap restaurant supply company. And here we were in the heart of the Amazon rainforest with people who have lived and sustained themselves off of the nearby river. Uh, I mean, we were they were literally by the river preparing this meal, eating canned tuna. And that image just, yeah. you know, broke my heart that, yeah. that, that these people have no fish anymore. Yes. No, no. Isn't, just real quick, isn't that sort of a, there's a double-edged comment on, on that. Not only are they forced to not be able to do what they've been doing for many hundreds of years, which is fish out of that river, but they're eating tuna, which anyone who knows anything about tuna, especially, I assume, this low-grade tuna you're talking about, is has some of the highest mercury content of anything you could eat in the world today. Yeah. So they're they're really getting it from all different angles. Yeah, aren't yeah. They? And, yeah, and no, it, it's incredible. Yeah, and it's flown down there or whatever. It's it's transported down there. So the yeah. the thing that caused their pollution is powering the, the thing that's the, going to poison <laughs> them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's you know, we force these indigenous people into a quasi Western lifestyle by virtue of the fact that we yeah. take away their means of sustenance. We tease them with Western ideas a little bit, and then they're abandoned, you know, not unlike our own American Indian when we first started this country. And people think that that treatment of indigenous people is something in the way, in the way past. Um, but, yeah. you know, the, the behavior of multinational companies in the extractive industries in the third world is just the modern-day continuation of this shameful treatment of indigenous people. At yeah. a time, you know, we, we all have this heightened environmental consciousness and an understanding that we can't continue, you know, trying to dominate the earth as opposed to living in harmony with it. Uh, you know, and, and at, that particular, at this particular time, you know, we should be cherishing the knowledge of the rainforest. We should be cherishing um, how people live in harmony with nature, and yet we're eradicating these people. I mean, there used to be six tribes that were involved in, in this area, and now there's five, you know, and, and the, the impact has been tremendous on people. You just identified a duality that, that I, I've come across all the time when talking to people about the environment, about these historic sort of trends in history and the rest of it. And there is a, a certain dissonance of when it comes to people talking about history. It's always something that that happened, oh, that happened 20, 30 years ago. That doesn't happen today because I'm living today and I don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. There's a, there's a way that we are able to put these horrible things in the rearview mirror by virtue of the fact that we just don't believe history is occurring at this moment. And that yeah. seems to be what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the larger theme of this film is that for six, seven hundred years, we've treated indigenous people terribly, and it's still going on yeah. today. Yeah. Well, we have documentaries now that are like this, though, and, and, and at least people can get some access to this type of behavior, I'm, I'm sure. You know, a hundred years ago, this wasn't quite this way. At least we're we're learning more about it. What, what was it like to to be in the rainforest? How how was it like producing a film in the rainforest? What was it like <clears> well, yeah. I mean, the making of this film <clears throat> was you know probably the hardest thing I've ever done. I've you know I've shot all over the world. I've been in many situations, but this was particularly difficult. You know, the film, just so listeners understand, the film is about this lawsuit. You know, 30,000 indigenous people or 30,000 rainforest dwellers, some of them are indigenous, some of them are colonial settlers, but 30,000 rainforest uh, inhabitants are suing oil giant Chevron for Texaco's alleged misdeeds in how they procured oil in that region in a 30-year period from the late 60s to the early 90s. Chevron and Texaco merged in 2001 
So, you know, the lawsuits against Chevron because uh, Chevron inherited the liabilities as well as the assets of Texaco. Um, and, you know, and as we, as I hope people know, Chevron is the largest company in California, third largest company in the United States, fifth largest company in the world. So this is people with minimal resources, rainforest inhabitants against, you know, one of the great corporate behemoths. Um, and uh, so I filmed this lawsuit as it was unfolding, and I think one of the interesting things about the film is that the trial actually took place not in a courtroom, yeah. but most of it takes place in the field in front of these pollution sites, hundreds of them. And, you know, these are the kind of sites that if they were in the United States would be fenced off from the public as Superfund cleanup sites. It would be like a Love Canal situation. Exactly, exactly. But yet people are living, still living in and around these areas, and this is where the trial took place. So from a production standpoint, it was exceedingly difficult. You know, we were at the equator. You know, Ecuador lies at the equator, and the jungle in particular is hot, at, hot as hell. Yeah. It was like 120-degree heat. You know, we were filming in front of these giant petroleum waste pits that after an hour or so, your eyes would be watering. You'd have a headache. Um, what did you do know, to the equipment that you were working with? Well, we were using small digital gear, and it was it, it, that wasn't that wasn't such an issue. Okay. You know, sometimes the temperature changed when we go from one region to the other. The lens lenses would fog, or we'd have a few issues like that. But generally speaking, it wasn't it wasn't the equipment that I was worried about. It was it was my body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were we were also in a malaria zone. So yeah. you know, in, in fact, the first couple of days, you know, my doctor advised me to take this drug, malarone, which is an anti-malarial. And I ended up having my Martin Sheen Apocalypse Now <laughs> hotel room moment. So I stopped taking that drug, and, and from that from that point on, we you know really covered ourselves head to toe with long clothing and you know lots of uh, you know hundred percent DEET bug spray, you know which in yeah. and of itself is toxic. Um, at times, we were a mile and a half from the Colombian border, where you know Ecuador and Colombia have a major border dispute because of oil, and so there's a lot of uh, FARC guerrillas running around and drug runners and you know these towns that we were filming in was kind of a wild west oil boom and bust town kind of scenario a lot of crime so I just you know kept my head low pointed my camera and hoped I'd, I'd get the hell out of there which I, which I did thank goodness okay. um, we're speaking with Joe Berlinger the film is crude the real price of oil it'll open this Friday um, in here in in Orange County across the street at the University Town Center and all across Southern California so. Now, now the uh, the players in in the film. The uh, yeah. h- how did you come to meet the uh, say uh, Pablo Ferrada, the uh, plaintiff's attorney? Did you get introduced from the uh, the New York lawyer that approached you? Yeah, the New York lawyer came to my office, and frankly, when he came to my office to tell me about the case, all of my filmmaker red flags were going off. That gee, I'm not sure I can make a film about okay. this because, first of all, he was talking about a 30 year. Sorry, not thirty or thirteen year history, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, you know, of this case because it's been going on now now seventeen years. When he came to see me, it had been going on for thirteen years, and I thought, well, I'm a cinema verite filmmaker who films things as they unfold in the present, and you know, yeah. thirteen years of history, I might have missed the story. I also felt mm-hmm. that Stephen Stephen, as the American attorney, even though he's an interesting character in the film, I didn't think he could be a strong central character because he has too much of an agenda. Um, so I was concerned about who's my main, you know, any documentary, you know, you want it to be also cinematically satisfying. So who's my main character going to be? I was concerned about that. I was concerned with who is going to pay for this kind of a film. You know, so I had all these red flags, but when Stephen took me down and I saw the pollution and I talked with people dying of cancer and childhood leukemia rates and all the skin rashes and things you see in the film, 
I said, you know, I have to, I have to help these people. I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be a film. Maybe I'm just going to hand off some footage and help these people. But I, I can't turn away after, you know, I can't go back to my nice home in Westchester County, New York, where each of my children's have their own nice bedroom and and there are three sinks in our house where all fresh water comes out and we yeah. all take it, take it for granted. You know, I, I literally looked at myself in the mirror, not to sound like a cliche and I said, you know, how can I how can I not help these people? How can I go back to my life and not do something? And so I started the project not thinking I was actually going to make a film on the level of say a Metallica some kind of monster or Paradise Lost, but I'm just going to point my camera, do what I can and see where it goes. But a few weeks uh, later on my second trip, I met Pablo Fajardo, you know, the the uh, Ecuadorian attorney who's running the case. And I knew right then that, you know what, I actually have the potential to make a wonderful film, even though I wasn't expecting it, because this guy is just drips with authenticity and heroism yeah. you know his as you see in the film and he is the main character as you see in the film what a story this guy has yeah, he, yeah. you know impoverished oil field worker you know who lived in the region saw the environmental degradation saw the humiliation of his fellow workers doesn't have two nickels to rub together and yet he pulls himself up by the bootstraps becomes a lawyer and his first major legal case is this case <laughs> against the you know a guy from the jungle against the fifth largest company in the world and 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 which and as you see in the film results in a moral victory of a 27 billion dollar judgment against Chevron which they you know they say they will never pay, and they will promise a lifetime of litigation. So it's, Which it's is, only a moral yeah. victory. Yeah, it's a, know, this is a strategy. That's what they're. I've just got to say though, I, I think you're very even-handed in the way you you uh, laid out Chevron's case. Uh, you know, there there are questions about the Ecuadorian government in this too, and, and their complicity in it all. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering about that, but but you did a, a real square job of of letting people know about it. you. You weren't pulling any punches on this. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that, and it was very important to me to get Chevron in the film, and it took a lot of work and a lot of convincing. I do believe it's a balanced film, because ultimately, you know, I am not smart enough to sort out the legal issues. You know, I'm not a lawyer, a doctor, a judge. You know, I can't tell you, and, and there are some interesting mitigating circumstances yeah. in this case. So I'm not smart enough to tell you whether or not Chevron has wrapped itself up in enough legal technicalities so that in the eyes of the law uh, that whether or not they should be held accountable. Um, but I think the larger message of the film is that Chevron and the government of Ecuador and the industry itself um, are morally responsible yeah. because the, the, the practices that, that were used to, to extract oil and to pollute were substandard and would not have happened in this country. And, um, you know, so you don't go into somebody's backyard where people have been living in harmony with nature for thousands of years um, and despoil their environment, whether it's legal or not, whether the government gave you permission or not, whether the government granted a release or not. I mean, there's, there's all of those issues in the film, and, and I let, I'll let the viewer make their own mind as to who should be paying for this mess. But the moral responsibility clearly lay at their door. Well, at one point in the film, you you do play the Chevron's response, their their little couple minute film that they showed to the stockholders, 
And just, you know, knowing what we know from watching the film and then watching Chevron sort of spin it, it's, that in and of itself is quite telling. It's quite an int- it's sort of the interesting side that if you were just a stockholder sitting in that, in that uh, building watching this thing, you might have no real idea what happened except that it's not their fault. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the themes of the film, you know, the film is an advocacy film for the plight of the indigenous people, but it's not a conventional advocacy film in the sense that it also observes the advocacy movement, um, and it observes each side trying to control the message. Um, You know, I think the plaintiffs are equally at fault in terms of, but I, I, you know, sometimes the the ends justify the means in this situation. You know, sometimes they manipulate the message, and some, you know, you see uh, the plaintiff's lawyer, Stephen Donziger, coaching the Kofan community leader in a hotel suite, uh, you know, in Houston before he's about to go you know, make a plea to the, uh, you know, to the senior management at the annual shareholders meeting. You know, so that's, that's a very honest scene, but it also shows that each side is trying to control the message. Conversely, Chevron has been famous for putting out incomplete spin on this case, leading even up to last week. They've released videos that discredit the, the judge, but they're leaving out incredible pieces of of information in doing so. For example, the judge that is currently implicated in some bribery scheme that if you actually look at those videos, you know, it's far from what they are saying. But even at worst, even if this judge is involved somehow in a bribery scheme, what they're leaving out of the story is that this is a new judge who just came on to the case, and he's not the judge who presided over the two and a half years of evidentiary collection, evidence collection in this evidentiary phase of the trial, which is the subject of the film. He's not the judge who received the independent court experts uh, assessment saying that Chevron owes $27 billion right. on this case. Right. So, so, so the spin that's being put out, it's, you know, if I was a shareholder and saw that video that we see in the film, I'd say, well, it's not their fault. Yeah. You know, but again, there's a lot of disinformation going on. You know, Texaco left Ecuador in '92. They hand, you know, because the government wouldn't renew their concession. They handed over this infrastructure, this oil drilling infrastructure, to Petro Ecuador, the new operator of these fields. And for 17, you know, for 15 years, Petro Ecuador also polluted and made the ma- and made matters worse. But Chevron, you know, the lawsuit was filed against Texaco shortly after de- their departure. The pollution existed upon their departure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but because Chevron dragged out this lawsuit and, and got it shipped from, originally it was filed in New York, they, they convinced a, a court in New York to send it to Ecuador. It's taken, it took about a de- over a decade to get the trial up and running. So now so much time has gone by, they kind of obfuscate the yeah. issue by saying, hey, we left in 92. Yeah, Ecuador has been the polluter, yeah. you know, and but no, no, the lawsuit was originally filed when you guys left the country. Yeah. There, there's many examples of that, and I just on a scale of sort of proportionality, I don't see them, the, the uh, Donzinger uh, coaching, a, a guy who's never really had much experience in public speaking about what he, you know, could be saying 
to uh, what the actions are of a multi-billion dollar corporation. But your point is well taken. Everybody's trying to get the upper hand in, in, in the PR battle. But yeah, uh, well, you know, it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's pretty... What, what's really fascinating about this, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Joe Berlinger, and the film is Crude, The Real Price of Oil. It's opening this week, this Friday, uh, here in Orange County and across Southern California and beyond. So those who are listening uh, via podcast, check this out. Um, what's really fascinating about this is what's fascinating <laughs> about this is the the uh, machinations of the e- Ecuadorian uh, justice system. Seeing the attorneys and yeah. the, and the judge argue in se- essentially in front of a forum of people uh, in the field while things are being uh, gathered and and the way that this is fascinating. I, I don't know if you knew anything about their judicial system before you went down there, but. No, and after after spending two and a half years uh, and being around and making a film, I'm still not sure I understand anything yeah. about the judicial system. <laughs> it's very yeah. confusing, yeah. you know. But um, look, uh, Chevron or Texaco, when they when they filed a motion in in '93 to have this thing sent to Ecuador, you know, attested to and certified to the transparency efficiency and fairness of the Ecuadorian courts as a reason why this class action lawsuit should be shipped there. You know, one could be cynical, and God, who would be cynical with a big, with a big corporation, <laughs> yeah. but one could be cynical and say, well, at the time there was a military dictatorship yeah. ruling the country with a cozy relationship with big business, as is common with Latin American countries, and, you know, gee, did they want it moved to Ecuador because they probably thought it would never come to trial and it would be out of the American public's eye. I, I couldn't say that, but um, we you could. know, but 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 they did they did uh, testify to the fairness, efficiency, and transparency of the courts. And now that the court, now that the case is going miserably for them, um, you know, now they say the, tr- the the court is opaque, inefficient, and not fair, and right. then they're, and they're not getting a fair shake. Right. Um, you know, the, the the judicial system down there is was strange to observe. Um, yeah. You know, a com- another common misconception about this case is that these 30,000 people are out to enrich themselves. And under Ecuadorian law, uh, you cannot receive um, damages for pain and suffering. So in this country, if, if there was a similar lawsuit, uh, people, you know, could actually get personal damages. You lost a spouse through leukemia. If you prove it, well, okay, you get a $9 million payment or whatever. In Ecuador, this is strictly about restoration of uh, the environment and some, and and some putting some kind of price tag on the you know trying to pr- restore indigenous culture and it's not about personal enrichment yeah. but the but the chevron likes to make that point that this is about people you know they had they actually had you know there's such a disconnect in this case when Pablo Fajardo won the environment the uh, Goldman prize yes. which is the environmentalist equivalent of the Oscar uh, you know, they actually went on television and said this is an environmental con man who's pulled the wool over the media's eyes and is looking to enrich himself. And when you see that this guy lives in a shack with his yeah. mother and is fighting on behalf of his people. And his, and his brother was obviously killed because of his activity as well. I mean, it's it's alluded to. I can't say that for sure, but, yeah. um, you know. Well, he, okay. You know, I, I, again, I'll say it, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, so, but so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's you know it's my, the disconnect between what they are saying and what the reality is is, and the sad thing is I think I believe that Chevron believes everything that's coming out of their mouths. I mean, there's institutional denial going on. They've all drunk the Kool Aid, and they be, and they believe uh, in the righteousness of their position. You know, when frankly a much smarter move would be to say, hey, you know what? 
we we have some responsibility in this because you know Texaco drilled for oil. We don't believe we did anything wrong, but you know what? We make lots of money, so you know let's 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 try to help bring these people some fresh drinking water, for example, yeah. like like the project that Trudy Styler and Sting, who are part of the film, you know they they went down, saw that this lawsuit was going to take forever, saw that there was no no relief being provided to these people, and created this fresh water. Uh, drinking program, these rainwater collection units that now provide some of the people with some fresh drinking water. Well, we've just run out of time. Unless, uh, Nathan, you have anything Well, I just else? wanted to say to get inform- more information on yeah. that, too, you could go to crudethemovie.com. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, urge, I urge people, you know, actually it's a very small uh, release, a very small movie. I think we're in one theater in Orange County and only one theater at the New Art in Los Angeles. And unless people show up, the movie's going to crash and burn so oh, no. and we're also you know so I, I so i really encourage people to try to go see it in the next week uh or in san francisco starting the 25th uh if people go to crudethemovie.com there's a list of where the <clears throat> where the film is playing uh, it'll it'll last and uh, okay <laughs> uh well thank you so much for being here on film school the, the, the again the uh the film is crude the real price of oil joe berlinger thank you so much hey thanks for having me To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.